Okay, welcome everyone. Nice to see everyone on this um, beautiful March day in Seattle. Remember, many of you don't live in Seattle, but it's still wonderful to see you. And welcome to anyone who might be new visiting for us uh, tonight for the first time. My name is Tim Guile, one of the guiding teachers here. And we'll start with a guided meditation, actually just a short little instructions, mostly silent. And they'll offer about a 20-minute talk and have a chance for us to explore this, this topic, explore our practice in small groups. All right, so let's settle into the, the meditation. All right, so as we come out of the meditation, taking a couple moments to reorient to your surroundings. I'm going to go right into this short talk just because it works better for the Zoom breakout rooms to, to have the, the break after the talk. So those instructions I gave were really non-instructions. It wasn't like focus on this, focus on that. Even though if we really listen to those instructions, the normal ones we give, they're designed to help us loosen our kind of engagement into this moment's experience. Start, stop trying to fight it, trying to do something with it. Even trying to observe it itself has a certain friction in it. So those instructions were pointed more toward a quality of, of really non-friction, non-resistance to this moment's arising, really not doing anything with this moment. Now, it's more subtle, and it does require a certain amount of energy. And I'm, I did happen to notice a few people were falling asleep. So if you fall asleep during a sit, it's really helpful for your own practice to stand up. You can switch to walking meditation to bring more energy, to bring a little more um, diligence to that. When you get, get a little sleepy or falling asleep outright, it's, it's, um, it's not so helpful for your practice not to have that habit. But that is a little of a side there, just a little bit of a rousing, <laughs> rousing for you, for those who might be sleepy. But when I say doing nothing with something, not nothing with the moment's experience, it's not about being completely passive. It's not about not actually, it's not really not about doing something. It's not too many negatives. It's really about that sense of me who's doing it. That's the part that falls away. That's what those that instructions were pointing toward. That's what the heart of the Dharma is really about. That seeing through that sense of me always having to be orchestrating, weighing in, saying something about, knowing, having a sense of separation between myself and experience. That's what the non-doing is about. The emptiness is about. It's not about not actually doing things in the world. It can be very creative. You can be very energetic, do very amazing things in the world. You're just questioning or looking at that sense of self that's behind all of it that we so much take for granted. But that's what I was exploring last week around these five aggregates. One of the Buddha's favorite ways to explore this sense of self, the sense of identity. One analogy I didn't give last week was of a, heard the story that a, a prince in the Buddhist time had never heard, I don't know if this is a mythology or a, an analogy, but maybe it was true, that there's this, this guitar-like instrument, it's called a lute that this prince had never heard before. And he heard it and he thought, wow, that's just amazing. I just love the sound of it. Where is this sound? 
Okay, let me examine this. So he took the lute and started to say, is it, you know, if I take the strings apart, is it in the string? Is it in the neck? Is it in the body? And he took it apart and still couldn't find that sound. And then, of course, he got even more frustrated and looked even more closely, broke it up into little chunks, into little slivers, into just keep trying to find where that sound is. And the analogy is the sound is that sense of self that we look at as a whole, that the music and the instrument and the performer comes forth that sense of sound. Sense of self is the same way the aggregates come forth to create that sense of me, especially when we're relating to those aggregates in a certain way, what's called the clinging aggregates. Okay, we're going to the aggregates here and briefly here, but the same analogy though, is if you look closely to where that sense of self is, even if we look very, very closely, do we find it? Is it as solid as we are acting like it is in our life? And then that's what the Buddha suggested is, you think it's so solid, is it? Actually look for yourself. Actually see for yourself whether it is or not. Because there's this background assumption that I'm always here, I'm always thinking, I'm always doing, I'm always feeling. And there's a relative truth to that, right? We can all say, yeah, I had that experience yesterday. I think I'm going to have this experience tomorrow. I'm sitting right here, listening, talking, whatever it might be. But if you start to look more closely where that actual sense of self is, we see how it's very illusionary. It's actually something that we're manifesting again and again in the moment. So the Buddha, in his very skillful way, took these five aggregates as a way to kind of taking apart that assumption. So the five aggregates are form, vedana, or feeling tone, perception, um, sankharas, or volitional impulses, and also consciousness, right? So I could, if I'm not careful, I'll spend an hour talking about it. So I'm going to just touch on those. So form is the sense of the physicality, of the sense of my body here, your body out there, this chair. And of course, I can pick this up, I can see it. But what we don't realize is that we so often take a sense of identity around it. Okay, I am relating to this bell. I'm relating to my own body as me, as mine, as I. And there's this assumption, that okay, that's where myself is, is in this body. So sometimes it's helpful to just challenge that assumption. See if it's really true. If I look closely, can I actually find that sense of self? You know, sometimes when I do this, I feel, okay, well, that sense of self is like in my head because I feel that kind of tension in there. Right? But maybe that tension is actually just that itself, in itself, just some tension and energy that's contracted. And if I look closely, it's, it's changing. It's amorphous. It's kind of fluxing and flowing. And the Buddha made an important point because we had this sense of self. It seems really solid and unchanging. It seems like it's always here. So if you see something that's actually changing, actually see for yourself the nature of its change, is that really who you are? Another way to say it is if you look at that sense of self or that sense of, okay, form as me, what is looking at that? What is observing that? Because yeah, I can, I can, I can't look through, I can look through my eyes. I see everything out there, but I can't look behind me. If suddenly I could see myself sitting here, actually I can do on the zoom. <laughs> so let's say the zoom was my consciousness. So there's a whole nother way we can talk about it. 
So in this window of Seattle Insight, the Zoom, the room of the, I can see myself talking. So if that was what was viewing, if that was really me seeing, I could realize, okay, I can't be there and also observing at the same time. Something else is observing that. Something else is sensing that. Okay, can I get a sense of that? It's like you're you're stepping back and observing what is observing. Right? This is still a form of the sense of self. It's still, it's just more subtle, becomes more the meditative witness, becomes more and more quieter versions of that. Until at some point we let go of that friction, that sense of doing, that sense of having to do something with this moment's experience. That was what I was trying to point toward in the instructions. So the Buddha had these, these very um, beautiful analogies he would pull out from the natural world. So he talked about form being like foam, like sea foam. If you go to the beach and you see how the waves churn up this certain white mass, that from a distance, it seems solid. When we actually examine it and see it, it's not so solid. It's very flimsy. The wind can just blow it away. We can take it in our hands, trying to find the substance in it, and it just dissolves in our very investigation. So the Buddha was saying that's the same way that the sense of self is in relationship to body, to form. We think it's solid, but if we look closely, it's not. It doesn't mean like suddenly all the forms disappear and vanish. What the Buddha is pointing toward is the emptiness of self around it, the emptiness of identity around it. Right? So this is, this is a, a, a very deep teaching, but it's also the fundamental teaching, in my opinion. So foam, uh, foam form and foam. The next one is bedana. Vedana is translated often as feeling tone. So it's not have to anything to do with emotions. It has to, though emotions have their own Vedana. It's this quality of being pleasant, unpleasant, or neutral. Right? So it's even more inherent or subtle to liking and disliking. It's, it's even more subtle than that. Just that slight flavoring of the moment's experience. That often it, it happens almost instantaneously after we have a moment of contact with the sense door, hear sound, smell, a, uh, smell a, what do you call it? An order, order. <laughs> hear, a, hear a sound, taste a, a taste, whatever it might be. We, we immediately, our brain says, okay, that's pleasant, unpleasant, or it's neutral. It's almost wired into us. It's conditioned because it changes over time. It changes based on people's background, history, and also their actions. And yet that feeling tone becomes this, this thing we make a big sense of self on. And I notice when someone says something to you that you feel hurt by, okay, that initial sound, the initial thought around it is unpleasant. When you go quickly into that aversion, that disliking, that, you know, that anger, that being hurt, and then we really feel, okay, that's really me. That's who I am. I'm really upset by what you said. Okay, so it doesn't mean we don't need to have those honest conversations and negotiate relationships and all those skillful things we do as human beings. It's not being, it's about not being confused about that's where the sense of self is. The sense of self isn't there. One way to look at it is next time you feel that quality of, of unpleasantness or pleasantness in the moment, 
just kind of let yourself kind of rest and notice that quality in itself. So just kind of tune into that, how that's kind of rising and passing away. And you see that that quality of Vedana itself, pleasant, unpleasant, unpleasant, isn't constant. It's not like even the sound, like if I ring this bell, if we really listen, it's not this constant one sound. It's this waves. Same thing with Vedana. So the Buddha made this point, if it's changing, is that really who you are? Is that really substantial enough to call that's I, me, and mine? The analogy for this one, for Vedana, was the little bubbles that form when a raindrops hits a a puddle of water. There's little drops, there's little bubbles that pop and vanish, pop and vanish, pop and vanish. You start to relate to Vedana in that way, you start to become a little less enamored in how that creates a sense of me, a sense of self. You see how quickly it's coming and going. That's why the next month we're going to, next three months, really open to these three characteristics of, of dukkha, of impermanence, or um, inicha, and anatta, or non-self, because those three really work together. That insubstantiality, that impermanence creates the quality of dukkha, unsatisfactoriness. And underneath all that is that sense of me who's also in, inherently insubstantial. So the next aggregate, so we got form, so body could be anything we touch, anything physical. We have that quality of being pleasant or unpleasant, Vedna. These are all happen in life, but just when we Use that and have that quality of making that sense of me around it. The next one is perception. So perception is a more subtle form because perception is that we see something and we often see it not from the, the, the direct immediacy of it. We see it through our labels, through our history, right? I see the, the you know, mixer and the amp here is like, oh, that's what that is. I know what that's for. And I see the bell. Okay, I know what I do with that bell. I like it. I dislike it. So I see how it carries in also the the potential for Vedana. It's kind of inherent in that quality. You know, that, that sense of labeling. So here's a thing to try out in your life. Is next time you see something, something simple that doesn't really interact with you much is often a nice way to do this. Because if you try to do it with a loved one, they're going to be like, what are you doing just staring at me? You know? <laughs> <laughs> but something like a tree or something like a pet might be a nice thing to do or like a bell, anything like that. Notice it and notice how your mind says, okay, I know what that is and how that in that very noticing and that very label of it, it creates the story inside yourself. It creates a sense of you in relationship to that thing you're observing. Now see if you can, once you acknowledge that, go underneath that. Let that just if you can, just let that fall away. Let that fall away so there's just the immediacy of seeing and perceiving before your ideas around it, before your labeling of it, before you fixate it in your memory, before you even know to like or not like, before you even have a pleasant or unpleasant experience to it. And notice what that does to the sense of you. You become 
if you do it in this this way, become much less defined, much less formed in relationship to it. And then you have this thought, okay, that's what I am, or that's what it is, that's what I am in relationship to it. It's that echolocation I talked about last year in some talks sometime. The Buddha said that this sense of perception is like a mirage. So the mirage that we see these days in this this part of the country anyway, when you're driving in the summer and you see the, the long stretch of the highway and you see a puddle of water in the distance. And it's really the, the heat waves creating that illusion of water. So the illusion of, of self in relationship to our perception. So it's not that we don't, it's not that we forget what things are and how we do things, how will we do with them? What we start to question is that sense of me that arises with that. And a nice way to practice it is to, let me see if I can let go of that image, that idea of something. This is why often people report on retreats or even after a, a, a really still sitting that you open your eyes and the world seems more vivid, more rich. Have you noticed that? You know, at a retreat, it's like, wow, suddenly these trees are just so much more vibrant, so much more alive. You're such more, much more available to experience. That's because we started to drop away our labeling. Labeling. We're actually meeting life just how it is. This is the essence of our meditation, of our mindfulness practice. Meet the moment just how it is. Instructions are, the very basic instructions are actually very deep. They're actually pointing toward this. They're actually designed for us to see that. But sometimes we forget. We're so busy, so we're so invested in this essential delusion of self that we just form that up without even realizing it. That's why I like to I like to start the meditation sometimes by just forget everything that you know about meditation. Just open your senses and let things be naturally seen, naturally known. Rest in the very quality of knowing, not the sense of you who's knowing it. Very simple. But yet there's so much momentum behind maintaining that sense of, of separation. Our perspective. So perception. Now the next one, sankharas or volitional impulses, are it's a it's a big one. It's a very powerful one because this is when we're really interf- interfacing with life, with our experience. We're doing something about it. So really, anytime we have an opinion about something, we're thinking about it. We're elaborating on it. Anytime we're acting out of that experience, we're coming from a quality of sankharas. So sankharas are really driven by our, our basic confusion, our basic way. It really maintains everything. It basically re-ups the ante. It's like we're re, recommitting. We're reinforcing again and again. Reinforcing what? We're reinforcing. We're reinforcing that sense of separation, that sense of identity through you know, how we, we see something. I see something, I'm... I start to meditate, I'm meditating. I'm already reinforcing it, right? So sankharas also have a much more, you know, when we get really emotionally charged, we have a lot of opinions. These are all manifestations of, of sankharas because we, we're making a choice. We may not realize we're making a choice, but we're choosing to go down that path. We're choosing to put more fuel on that fire. We're adding more energy to that. 
right? So that has its own momentum. That's when we can talk about it from karma, from how action causes a certain result in the future, predisposes things to arise in some way. We may not be able to predict how it arises, but sets the seed for something to arise in the future. So Sankara is because they are so, so much feel like me. I'm the one who's upset, the one who's nervous, who's scared, who's happy. They seem really solid. It really seems like if that's where the sense of self is, that's got to be there, right? So that that's why I like to often say, do nothing with the moment. Do nothing with the moment is meaning releasing that impulse of Sankara's. It's releasing that, re-upping that, re-engaging in that experience, or not an experience, but re-engaging in that, that selfing around it. If you really do that, don't be surprised if you feel a little uneasy because where is the ego in that? Where is the ego in doing nothing with this moment? Where is the sense of self in doing nothing with this moment? It becomes, it starts to fall away. So the Buddha's analogy for this was a banana tree. So banana tree looks very solid from outside. So, you know, it's strong, it's big. If you cut, if you look for the heartwood in it, the center of it, we cut it open, it's actually empty. It's hollow inside. So looking at the Sankaras more and more closely, you see their emptiness. And finally, consciousness, the final aggregate. So consciousness is, on one hand, it's anytime we hear something, there's a kind of a subcategory of consciousness that's hearing, that's that ear consciousness. Then we switch to eye consciousness. So we're kind of always switching back and forth. You know, some traditions talk about the bigger sense of consciousness, kind of blurs it with awareness itself. So sometimes the definitions get a little confusing. But the key thing here is the sense of me who's knowing. I am knowing this. Okay, the consciousness, I think that's me who's experiencing this. So the Buddha's analogy was this of like a magic trick. Okay, sleight of hand. Look here, here's the actual trick. Right? So saying that this, this sense of self seems like it resides in that quality of consciousness. But when you look closely, we actually see it's constantly changing. It's not as solid as we think it is. So all these words are basically just ways of describing how we we make something out of nothing, essentially. How we take that sense of of this kind of um, the essence of silence, the essence of emptiness, and we create that sense of self from that. Say, that's me. The Buddha said, that's why we suffer. That's the cause of dukkha. That's the origination of dukkha. All right, so that's kind of in the nutshell of the five aggregates. Not enough time to really explore it, but that's, it gives us a taste to, to, basically the bottom line is, as you practice meditation, as you practice life, being in life with a skillful way, practice relaxing into what's knowing practice relaxing into the stillness which is holding that experience doesn't mean you don't still act and do things in the world you're just you're coming from you're understanding that nature of self is actually 
constructed arises. All right, so let's just sit quietly for a couple moments, letting those words settle where they will. All right, so we'll in a second take a, a five-minute break, and then we'll come back and do some small groups so you have a chance to talk among yourselves to say, you know, I don't know what the hell heck he's sorry, what the heck he's talking about. But or maybe you have some understanding or some sense of that. And so you can explore your your own relationship to the aggregates and what you've noticed based on the homework. I'll talk more about that when we get come back. And just calling your attention to to Donna. So Donna is this polyword for generosity that it really is the lifeblood of Sims and of, of teachers like myself and Carrie and Terry and the LDLs, any, any teacher who's really devoting their life to practice and teaching, they need your support. You know, and the organizations like Sims and other organizations also need your support. So it's important to develop a ongoing relationship to, to Donna. The amounts you give an offer, it's completely up to you and it's completely depends on your means. I mean, someone who gives just a little bit, that's, and that's all they have. You know, I mean, don't give all you have on I me, mean, but <laughs> give in a way that proportion to your own. And so if you, if you only have a little to give and that you get that, that's, that's a great act of generosity. You know, if you have more and you give more to help balance things out, that's also wonderful. So mechanically, there's the online. We just gave you some links to that. Thank you, Kathy, our Zoom tech support tonight. And also in the, in the room, there's um, some physical baskets for currency. There's online options. And that's enough to be said about Donna. But you know, consider supporting you know, all the teachers and whatever means works for you. All right, we'll come back in five minutes. So at 8.10, and we'll do uh, some small group discussions. All right, welcome back. The homework was, I'll read it, most of it here, is that we have this assumption of a self at the center of our experiences, of our thoughts, our emotions, our senses. Okay, so it's relatively true. Dharma practice points to the underlying illusion of self. And so the homework invitation was to notice how that sense of self arises in relationship to these five aggregates. So aggregates, I know it takes a while to kind of get them so you kind of know them, so you can, you know, memorize them and, and speak for them. But you might just speak of it from a very general way, like, when do I feel like that sense of self arises? You know, what actually creates it? Like, is it like, you know, I was talking to someone during the break. Maybe it's when this person did actually say this, but I, I made an example. Like, you say your spouse or your significant other says something to you you know, they say the right thing, you can get really triggered by it, right? You know, if you're in a long-term relationship, you know, we all know it's not all just puppies and butterflies, right? There's, there's times where you get kind of caught with each other. So talk about what it, that sense of self heart arises and see if you talk about that nature of, if you look closely, where is that sense of self? Is it as solid as you think it is? So if you've explored that, you can talk about that exploration. And if you haven't explored it, this is the first time you've heard about it, just do it with your, take your time in the group to, to do it real time. Just say, okay, I, you know, I haven't really thought about this, but I'm going to 
just take a couple minutes to explore out loud with you all. I'm going to say, okay, where's the sense of me? I'm going to close my eyes or keep my eyes open. Well, it seems like it's here. Okay, well, if I look closely, that's that's kind of a fluxing, changing, kind of amorphous thing. And, and if that's where I am, how can I observe that? Right? So that sense of you can't, I can't see my myself because I don't, my eyes are here. But if I'm observing it, that means I'm outside of that point of location. You get a sense of that? So even if you've never explored the aggregates or even if you have, you might want to just take some time to do that, to you know, take a few minutes to just explore the aggregates. So I have 20 minutes to talk about these, and then we'll come back and have some larger group questions and have a good uh, exploration. All right, I think everyone's come back. We're in process right now. All right, looks like everyone's back. All right, so I'm curious what you talked about, how what your exploration around these aggregates, how that sense of self might be. And online, you can just raise your, your virtual hand. It's going to be under um, perhaps more button or reactions. Raise your hand like I just did mine. And online, I mean, in person, I should say, uh, sometimes I get confused about whether you're online or in person. Uh, you can just raise your physical hand. I wonder, does the five aggregates have anything to say about our sense of social identity, like how we're being seen by others, and how we want to be seen by others? Yeah, that's a, pr- a very powerful way that it shows up. Yeah, that social identity, both, you know, people, the outside world reinforces it, you know, and how you know, they behave with you as based on your, your, where you fit into the society, where society thinks you fits in, and also how you maintain that. And that's, that's one of the, the ways that Dharma and, you know, social justice and things like racism and all the different isms can really be explored from a Dharmic perspective, because it's basically hardened ways that we create that sense of self in ourself and then someone else. And then we act based on that curation and practices learning how to to see through that to that fall away so, yes do you mind coming up so they can hear you online i'm curious uh, i was talking about uh following the selflessness to like a, a place of natural conclusion and i feel like uh if i were to continuously follow this kind of path of selflessness uh i wouldn't jive well with others and I feel like there's a natural um, a truncation of myself from society if there is like n- no self, and if we're all just kind of like entities of no self existing within the same space. It's like how how do you think that I can exist, or what do you have any tips on existing in? a social structure while also being a no self. You kind of catch my, mm-hmm. my meaning. All right. Let me pull back the camera. Yeah, it's a great question of, you know, what, what is that sense of self? You know, if you really fall through and the self disappears, how do you be in the world? How do you navigate the world? How do you relate to other people? 
they don't have a self. You have a self. What do you talk about? And how do you make a living? You know, all these kind of things. How do you parent your children? How do you be in a partnership? All those kind of things. It's a great question because it's, it's, it's really, we could almost say from the, let's say the ego's perspective or the sense of self's perspective, we can use those a little interchangeably. It doesn't make any sense to not have it be there because it's kind of embedded in the fabric of how we show up in the world. It's like, it's, it's really, it's so close to our eyes. We don't even realize it's, it's there. It just loads up so quickly. That's why with meditation, I like to we sort of have a little bit of a pause that perhaps we can unload that a little bit or start to release that. So from the sense of self's perspective, if it's not in the driver's seat, what, there's not going to be anything to do. There's nothing to interact. How do you interact? How do you have things? But from the other side, when the sense of self falls away, you realize you don't actually lose anything except all the suffering. You don't lose all, you, what you lose is all of that contraction of heart, that contraction of mind. Because the sense of self, it's the sense of who you are, the personality, the manifestation is uniquely you. It's like that's, we look out and see a tree, we see another tree, they all have their own unique features, yet they can be also inherently empty of self. So we can really appreciate those unique features. We can work with them, you know, if they have limitations or wounding or hurts, all those things, we can care for them. We can delight them. them. You know, someone might be really skilled at making beautiful music, another one, beautiful artwork, or maybe solving some complex computing problem. But the sense of self can be empty from all of that and still arise. And in fact, I would say it makes us be much more, um, much better citizen in the world. Because if you look at when we, a lot of the conflicts or when the sense of self is really hardened and believed in, just take any kind of issue. And when people are really polarized, how empty is the sense of self in that polarization? I mean, they've really opinionated. This is how things are. And you're absolutely wrong. Another person is saying the exact same thing, except with a different conclusion, right? You know, and then this, when we feel that sense of, 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 you know, when things, we lose things, those worldly wins, when we experience blame and experience pain, and that sense of me is central to that. It magnifies, amplifies the pain, amplifies the suffering. And that sense of self isn't, since the self is not, is seen through, we still have pain, but we don't amplify it in the same way. So I think it actually allows us to be much more, I mean, just in a very concrete thing, like with, like from my wife and I, if we have a, a conflict, if I stay caught in my own opinion and my own hurt, that maintains the, the strife. If I'm able to let go of my opinion and really listen to her side of the, of the situation, really listen to the impact of my actions, I can fully own that. I can take full responsibility for it. And yet it's not, I don't take it so personally. Does that help? Yeah, thank you. Yeah, great question. All right, Kathy, go ahead. Well, I had I had two questions. And one of them is to is to do with something you said right at the beginning of the meditation. You said something along the lines of if I caught this correctly, I think you said Tim. Something about I am not to, to try uh, saying I am not meditating. Like I'm going to be aware, and that was just I've never thought that before. 
I thought, now I'm going to meditate, you know. It's all going to be just, you know, really a nice package. Oh, my goodness. I, it, I, I found my, um, I, I think I understand the idea about, uh, in theory anyway, about the awareness. But then, then uh, for me to be a little, just, I, I don't know, somehow just less looser or less, maybe less, there's less of a self-involved. Then uh, to, to watch my mind wandering is ah yeah kind of difficult. And, and uh, my other question was if you if you have views when you have it, I mean we all have ethics and things we want to believe in. When you have a view and you have a friend who comes up to you and says, "Oh, I don't agree with that. I think this instead." What do you do with that? I mean, what do we? What do we? How do we move? beyond that. Okay. So the first question, if I, if I heard it right, was around just that the, the meditation, how we often have this habit of being the meditator, doing the meditation. And there can be, you know, if we feel skilled at it or feel like we're pretty adept at it, there's a certain comfort in that. But when I say, don't be the meditator, just allow awareness to be what's doing it. It's like it disrupts that. And that was what it was designed to do is disrupt that loading up the aggregates, loading up that, that sense of self. And that's kind of the, in some ways, the um, tragic might be too strong a word, but perhaps not that we can think we're really working toward awakening, but we don't realize we're kind of carrying the very thing that keeps us furthest away without even realizing we're doing it. And so we've been practicing for a while. When we understand, okay, this is how I work with hindrances and how I, because all those skills we still need at times, right? Sometimes this kind of a subtle seeing, we have to have a certain conditions, a certain ripeness to be open to it. Sometimes when we're really reactive, it's all we can do to just say, okay, I'm going to focus just on this one breath. You know, we're bringing all that energy. But if it's we're always doing that, then it, it starts to be more of a, a habit. And that habit holds the seeds of our suffering. And so that's why at times we can, okay, What's the space? What's what's actually knowing this before I load up as a meditator? Before I open up that app on my phone called Tim the Meditator? Right? Maybe if I don't put the, lift up the phone at all, what is knowing? And this is actually pointing to how that awareness is actually a lot easier than we ever think it is. It's just that as human beings, we kind of have to like just exhaust all other possibilities until we finally let go. So there's that piece. So the other question was around um, when someone has a difference of opinion and you really know that you're right and they're wrong. It's kind of <laughs> the essence of it. Like, okay, the, you know, around morality or something like that, a difference of, of, of things. So it, this is what there, it's going to go back to the last question around, you know, how does this sense of, how does the non-self navigate the world is like there can still be, in some ways there's a much greater clarity about what is, what is base, what is not harm. Actually, you know it in a much more clear way. And it's kind of that, that deep knowing you don't have to argue the point so much. You don't have to like try to convince someone else. And at the same time, the paradox is you have, because you're not like worried about people judging you or, you know, 
not liking you because that sense of self doesn't have that that magnet, if you will, to those beliefs. You're able to be much more proactive and say, you know, that's that action is not okay. That action is causing harm. And so, in, in many ways, you can be much more of a powerful choice, force of change in the world. And it's what's powerful about it is not only can you come from that conviction, but you can also meet someone else's opinion and actually, you know, maybe hear them and see, okay, this is where your perspective is, and and you can you can have more skill of navigating whether it's more of a hearing each other or maybe just being very firm that this is the way that is 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 the kindest way, the wisest way. Does that help at all, Kathy? Yeah, thank you. Anyone else here? Yeah, come on up. So I kind of got stuck on, and I don't know if I heard this correctly. Okay. I kind of got stuck on when you were talking about um, who is that observer that's observing the self. Yes. Um, so is that like your conscious that we also say is part of the self? Or I don't know if you could just talk. It's, it's okay. I'll, I'll repeat the question. Yeah. Okay. So is it consciousness, which is knowing? Yes. Yeah. Just in general, could you talk a little bit more about like who is that thing that's observing the self that we often, I don't know, just that whole part. Yeah. Yeah. All right. So to paraphrase that, see if I captured that correctly. That sense of noticing who is watching, who is observing, noticing, observing the wit- witness. What is observe? What is that? Is that kind of the essence of the question? Yeah, that's a really interesting inquiry because usually what happens is we we have that sense of me who's meditating. This is a big improvement from just being lost in experience, right? Because we're just there's no perspective. We start to observe that sense of me who's who's having this breath or having this emotion, or having this thought, that's the meditative witness. There's a, there's a sense of, of, I'm definitely observing that. I'm just more, more, have more perspective. But if you say, okay, what's, where is that located? Where is that? That's then what's what observing that. Often it's a little bit like, you know, when you take two mirrors and you look at yourself in one mirror and there are mirrors behind you, if it goes on to infinity, it can be just more and more subtle ways of that self-observing itself, right? So we can have just a more subtle witness is, off, is usually what happens. Until at some point, we start to become kind of sick of that process. But there's just like, okay, this just gets more and more subtle, but there's still a sense of me who is observing that. Okay, so then that's, then we're at the point, we come to the end of our will. Or that, that what we can do, how much we can do. What I mean by, I can be more, what I mean by that is we can be more subtle in observing, a more subtle, more subtle, more subtle, mirror upon mirror upon mirror. But that, that finally that point when we get sick of it, we say, we kind of, we, some, we let go, something lets go. You know, we, we relax into something. What that thing is, is that it was what your question is, is we can say it's, it's kind of the consciousness, which is kind of always here. That's actually, it's like we're falling back into what's always been present. This is always from the day we were born. 
is we, we forget that. We forget that consciousness is, is actually something of something much bigger. Because when we open to that, we realize, oh, this consciousness is actually shared by all things and all other people. That's the, another part of the question that I didn't quite get to with yours. The first question around how to navigate the world. And you start, you know, you start to, how can you relate to someone else? You actually relate to who they truly are versus this, this habit of mind. Okay. So at some point, does the consciousness just fall away and we become just like, as it's like almost like flow, like in the moment, we're just constantly in the moment and we're, the consciousness has fallen away. We're no longer observing others or ourself or making things like adding stories to things is at some point that's falling away. Is that what you're saying? Yes. There's a few ways you describe some of those I think are more accurate than others. So you talked about, you know, being in the flow, talking about not making stories. And was the third one was around adding two things, adding two things. So like being in the zone or the flow, um, I think that's, there's a quality of that, but that we can also experience that really from the sense of self's perspective. That's really a quality being really collected in the moment. We, we learn to do that as meditators. If we fall into it, we learn to do that. If we're really excelling in any kind of, you know, sporting event or any kind of artistic event, there's often that place we fall into that. It's, it's like, it just seems to be f- coming from us, but there's still that, that underlying deep, perspective of separation so that's the big thing is that there's that sense of separation self and other so when that falls away yeah then there's there's not that separation there's a sense of of unity of interconnection and yeah there's not the stories they don't really have anything to land and they might arise in the moment but usually what maintains them is the sense of me doing something with well that's a good story i don't like that story you know, how to see how even the words point to that. I am engaging in it versus the story just arises and falls away. But really the mind becomes less, doesn't like to, it doesn't really have much inclination to think. doesn't really have much inclination to add anything to. So we're kind of all talking around this experience, but it's really, it's something that's, it's hard to describe. So is the observer um, arising and then falling away too? So the question is, does the sense of observer arise and pass away? If you say the observer, like the sense of, of the me noticing, yes, that definitely, you start to see all that. It's, it's, it arises and passes away. But it's, you clearly, what is knowing it is clearly not part of that arising and passing away. So it's something that's, it's like this feel that just holding everything. And yeah, the sense of me arises and it passes away. And it's not a problem. Yeah, thank you. All right, we're getting kind of far up there. That's that's good to explore this these sides of the Dharma. Any other questions or comments? Yes, would you mind coming up? This really helps the online people feel like they're in the room. So a question that I had was um I started noticing during meta meditation that I'm repeating I, 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 and then yeah. thinking about other people and their relationship to me, me, me. Uh, and I was kind of curious, like, oh, am I, am I doing it wrong? Is it more subtle than I think it is? Is it both of those things plus seven more? Thoughts would be lovely. Okay, great. So comment is around meta meditation and how 
um, you know, those of you who practice it, we teach it with that, you know, I, may I be safe, may I be peaceful, or may you be safe. And so there's, there's literally that perspective of self in that. And so this is where we, we don't throw out all our, you know, skillful means or our ways of cultivating, you know, so we can practice metta in a very intentional way in, in terms of try to kind of change those basic patterns of mind, of, of harshness, of heart, of contraction, of hatred. And metta is a very powerful way to change that in an intentional way. It's almost like we have to kind of let things be a little bit more, or sometimes a lot more friendly and kind in the sense of me before we feel safe enough to let that sense of me fall away. So that's often what metta, you know, is really helpful around. Because if we're really, if we have so much self-hatred and self-judgment, hatred outward, that sense of self is just going to, even if we try to jump, you know, do like the shoots and ladders game, you know, we try to jump up and skip a bunch of the, the game, we're going to hit a shoot and it's going to drop us right back. You know, it's like that, that spiritual bypassing doesn't work. And the Buddha, the way he taught the metta, he didn't use those phrases. That came later. That was part of the commentary that, um, yeah, I forget the name off the top of my head, but so it's it a way of developing concentration. And, and in modern times, we use that also for cultivation of intentionality and kind of undercutting this, this self-hatred we often have. But if you look at the suttas, the, the Buddha talked about them. There's this one sutta that I like to, I find very powerful around metta. And it's really talking about non-self in relationship to metta. And he was talking about when you get really reactive to something, get angry at someone, you know, try to be like the air and someone's trying to paint the air. You know, how much does the air take that on? Or be like the earth and someone's trying to get rid of the earth and the earth is, is, is immeasurable. Or being like a, a torch trying to set the, the river on fire, you know, just it's quenched. So it's got different ways of showing how from a place of, of non-self, yeah, there is not, there doesn't land anywhere. And yet there can be this radiating quality of kindness, this radiating quality of interconnection. That's, it actually becomes the more natural state from that place. So to play with that is you might notice sometimes when you're doing metta, Practice wordless metta. Just practice like the early suttas talk about the radiating metta in one direction and another direction. Without, without the phrases, just that intentionality of, of kindness, of non-harm. And just see how, how that is like to send that outward and inward. Right, thank you for that question. All right. Any last questions before we call it a night? Okay, let me get online, then we can, you can come up, we don't have time for you, if we don't have time. Um, does someone raise, raise their physical hand? Okay, so um, Woody, go ahead. You're, You're still... Okay, oops, got it again. How about that? Now you can hear me? Okay, good. Uh, yeah, I, I was noticing when... Uh, when you gave the instructions for not meditating <laughs> tonight, that I relaxed all right. And then all these miserable, you know, I spend a lot of time by myself and all these miserable thoughts about things in the past that have been 
uh, nagging me, came right back. He said, oh, good. He's not meditating. <laughs> Come right back in. And uh, is there anything to be said about that, or is it just something you have to live through? All right. So comment is around that kind of non-meditation meditation, how yeah. we take off the normal kind of um, effort of, of just focusing. And usually yeah. when we focus, we let go of other things. Mm-hmm. And we have that kind of open awareness quality. Right. All those unresolved things start to pop up and arise. Mm-hmm. So that in itself, it kind of depends. Um, so what to do with that? So one hand, it may be helpful to, you know, come back when that's happening, find some grounding in the present moment. Okay. Mm-hmm. Okay. I'm going to, that's not the right time. This is too charged. And I come back to my body, my breath. And also realizing that those things, they're showing something which is unresolved in you, something that, that has a charge in you and learning how to work with those. So sometimes you can work on it, you know, very deeply from a meditative standpoint. Sometimes it's better to work on it from a different perspective, like, you know, therapy or trauma work, depending on the nature of that. Sometimes it's grief work. Sometimes it's working on self-forgiveness. Mm-hmm. So it's, it's like talking about Anatta, if you just talked about that, we lose all these other things that often as human beings, we have to learn to, to work with and address. And so when, you know, the, the nature of what you, what came up for you, I'd be curious to, um, to see if there's kind of common patterns in there and where those patterns are. Mm-hmm. And it may be that, you know, working with them in a, in a more direct way can be helpful. Okay. And, and eventually, you know, once it's like the, they have a snuff charge that they kind of carry us right into them, yeah. but eventually we can start to loosen that charge, relax that charge, whether it's through meta, you know, therapy, inquiry, mm-hmm. compassion work, all these different qualities then they can arise and we can see the inherent emptiness in those too. Mm-hmm. You know, but because they have such a charge, it's like we get stuck right to them. Mm-hmm. Yeah, great. Thank you for that question. All right, so we reached nine o'clock. So you're welcome to come up if you didn't have a chance to, to ask your question. Um, unless you're online, then we'll have to tackle you next time. And uh, Twery will be here in the next three weeks and exploring these three characteristics. So I'm sure you have a great time with her and I'll see you um, whenever I'm coming back next. I forget sometime in maybe, maybe May, I think May. I'll show up. Okay. All right. Have a great evening. Thank you for your support.